This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Try going this way a bit, that's better. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Philippa Cochran, and it's my very great delight to welcome you all here. You're all looking remarkably fresh given the time of the morning, it has to be said. Um, it's my great pleasure to be here today to introduce this lovely lady on my right, who is obviously Simone Howell. Um, I'm hoping that you all know that and are all expecting that. Um, Simone is over from Australia, she's been in the UK for about three months. And is, this is her last event. She's going back tomorrow, literally. She's getting a train down to London and on a plane tomorrow morning. So we're very lucky to have her here today. Um, Simone is going to be talking about her two books for young adults. The first one of which is Notes from the Teenage Underground. And the second one of which, the more recent one, is Everything Beautiful. Um, I think the only other thing that I have to tell you is that she tells me that she has dabbled in all sorts of things in her life, a wide and varied and interesting life, including phoning, uh, founding her own small press, Vandal Press, which is a great name for a publishing company. And also, she's won in her time um, a prize called the Gold Innkeep, which is for Inside a Dog's Teenage Choice Awards 2007. Inside a Dog is a great great website for teenage fiction and reviews and all of the content um, comes from teenagers like yourself. So it's worth checking out. It's an Australian site, but it's worth checking out. All that remains is for me to ask you to join with me in giving Simone a huge welcome to the book festival. Thank you and uh, hello. I was going to stand, but I think if I stand, I might start wobbling and fall, and that would be amusing, but embarrassing. So um, I'm here to talk about place in fiction, um, place in my fiction specifically, but I thought I'd actually start with places in other people's fiction as a way of easing in. And uh, here I go. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozing smell nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that meant comfort. And I think you probably know where that's from, because there's a bit of a clue in the second line. Um, the Hobbit is one of the books that made me want to become a writer. Um, it's actually the only book of J.R.R. Tolkien's that I've ever read, because his books started to get a bit fat after that, and I'm not very good past 300 pages. I start to kind of go, oh, I can't remember who... Eh. So, um... But for some reason, I love The Hobbit, and I had a tape recording of it, um, like an audio book, which I used to listen to every night before I went to bed. And I could probably sing you some of the dwarf songs, but I won't do that. Maybe later, if you're lucky. Um, this first paragraph, I know it so well because I used to recite it at parties in the hope of impressing boys. Um, <laughs> and my success rate was really pitiful. Although nowadays, I think I'd probably fare a bit better because The Hobbit boys have grown up. Um, so The Hobbit's about a little person who hates adventures and yet is forced by a wizard called Gandalf into going on a really big one that involves goblins and trolls and elves and wine barrels and dragons. Um, I think the reason I liked The Hobbit so much was because Bilbo Baggins was such a reluctant adventurer. He's a reformed homebody and I love the sound of his house underground where he has rooms devoted to food. And I love how the further into his adventure he goes, the more mythical his own place becomes. In his battles, he's constantly harking back to the comfort and quiet of Bag End. Longing mixed with memory makes a powerful potion. 
Bag End is never more cosy than when Bilbo's as far away from it. When he returns home, it looks smaller, and you know it won't be long before his hairy feet are starting to itch. This is another favourite, just from a little book called To Kill a Mockingbird you might have heard of. Somehow it was hotter then, a black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts, flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. To Kill a Mockingbird is set in the town where Harper Lee grew up, but even when writers write about real places, they're making something up. Memory is selective and history is subjective and no two people remember the same event the same way. Harper Lee based Dill on, the, um, on her friend, the writer Truman Capote, who lived next door to her when she was a child and he in turn based the character Idabel on her in his novel Other Voices, Other Rooms. You can see how things might start to get complicated. This is why I don't have many friends who are writers. Place can also be a character in its own right. This is from John Fanti's Ask the Dusk. Um, it's a book about a struggling writer who moves to Los Angeles and falls in love with a Mexican waitress. Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I came to you. My feet over your streets, you pretty town. I loved you so much, you sad flower in the sand. But when things turn bad, who do you think he turns on? Forget you, Los Angeles. Forget your palm trees and your high-assed women, your fancy streets, for I'm going back home, back to Colorado, the best damn town in the USA. Uh, so a summary to end my introduction of other people's fiction and bring it all back home. Like Harper Lee, I set my first novel somewhere familiar. Like J.R.R. Tolkien, I have made maps of my, main, of my novel's world. And like John Fante, I romanticise everything and um, swear lots, but I have censored for your mm, approval, disapproval, teacher's approval, you know. Okay, so Notes from the Teenage Underground is here. Um, I'll just read the opening. Sure. Things I love about the National Gallery. How on the outside it looks like a big public toilet block, but inside it's full of treasure. How running my hand along the water wall at the entrance makes me feel five years old and daring. How gallery goers are either looking to get lost or pretending that they're not. And how in the great hall, when the sun shoots through the stained glass ceiling, lost or not, people's faces take on rainbows. Um, I remember the first time I learned the word peripatetic, which means you move around a lot. And I always wanted to say to people, I had a peripatetic childhood, but I didn't, incidentally. I can still remember my first phone number. I can't remember my current mobile number, so that might tell you something about me. I grew up in a suburb called Ringwood, about 40 minutes out of Melbourne, a sort of limbo land between sophisticated city living and the bumpkin hills of the Dandenong Ranges. And I can tell you it felt like a cultural wasteland. The best thing about Ringwood was the mall, which was called Eastland. Must have faced the east. Now it's spread and it's enormous. The mall was my spiritual home in my early teen years for lurking and gossip, checking out tough boys with their cigarettes and Ugg boots. This is back before Ugg boots were fashionable, although they've probably come full circle again and are unfashionable. Rumour had it there was a pimp who hung out at Ringwood Station and if you, like, if you had the right kind of look, he would come and try and recruit you, but he didn't actually ever come and recruit me. So again, that might be another suburban myth. Um, the suburban notes from the Teenage Underground is never named. All Gem says is that it's a little bit country and not very rock and roll. And actually, it's more like Warrandyte, which is the hippie-ish neighbouring suburb where I wished I'd grown up. Kids there were free-range and had political parents who smoked pot at parties and lived in houses with floor-to-ceiling windows. 
I stole the river from Warrandyte and the hippie vibe and I relocated it. And then godlike, I moved the highway, pushed Eastland further east and the end result was something like this map, which will come up now with the magic. So it's a bit unclear, but I will now stand. So you've got your bridge and that's the river and that's the road and that way is the country and that way is the city. These are all the boring shops. This one with the stars around it is Inez Wisdom's Magic Emporium, which is where the summer before the, the summer that we're talking about, um, Joe and her friends Lo and Mira used to go to buy books on witchcraft and chakras and that kind of thing. That's kind of like a little magic place for them. This with the broken heart is Video City, also called Video Nasties, which is the video shop where Jem works. Um, and the love heart is to resemble, of course, the broken heart because her crush Dodgy works there and things end badly for them. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by giving that away. Um, boring shops. River Reserve, where lots of action kind of happens all along here, the River Walk. I don't know if any of you guys live somewhere near a river or... Um, one thing I remember really strongly about my childhood was that we'd always end up down the river, just kind of like hiding in trees and being away from other people and making it a sort of magic space. And So I sort of had the river there for my characters as well, for that reason. And then, of course, this is the river reserve where the town at the end of the year would like have their New Year's Eve fireworks. So that's kind of like that thing of living in a small town where they're sort of pretending that they're a bit of a village and there's a village vibe, but actually, even though everybody knows everybody, kind of no one really wants to know everybody and really wishes there were more strangers around. Um, I might just read a little bit about this from the start of Video City, as that is Jem's spiritual home. And... Just need to find it. Okay, so with the map in mind, this will probably be a bit easy to visualise. I walked across the bridge and along the shopping strip, past the bakery, the post office, the candle shop, the second-hand bookshop and Inez Wisdom's esoteric emporium, until I came to the squat beige cube that is my place of employment. Video City's aesthetic is high scuzz, peeling paint, dated promo posters, rising damp and dust motes. This is the place where videos come to die. There are miles of aisles bearing cases cracked and sun bleached, with titles so Z-grade they should be outlawed. Not for nothing did Dodgy nickname the shop Video Nasties. I smoothed my hair and bit my lips to make them look redder, and then I opened the door. I was expecting to see Dodgy sitting with his back straight, watching something with subtitles and a soft jazz soundtrack. Instead, I walked into an oral landscape of screams and raining rubble. Marco, my other co-worker, was sitting with his feet up on the counter. He was eating hot chips and watching Earth Earthquake for the umpteenth time. Marco and Dodgy are like different sides of the same coin. They're both doing film courses at TAFE, ostensibly so they can access the equipment for free. Dodgy has a kind of slick appeal, but Marco's always reminded me of the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. He has untamed hair and pudge. His socks smell. He wants to growl, but for all his barbs, I could picture him saying affirmations in the mirror each morning. You, as much as anyone, has the right to be loved. Hey, he shouted over the din. I covered my ears and mimed, I can't hear you. He pressed the mute button. Thank you. I stood back from the counter, maintaining a safe distance from his shoes. What's going on? Genevieve Bujold is about to fall into the canal. Marco, Marco gave a royal wave. As you can see, I'm run off my feet. 
The store was predictably empty, while our bus is a recluse and an anachronism. At the dawn of the DVD age, when all the outlying stores started offloading video stock, he went on a mad buying binge. He thought that Video City would become godhead for all suburban cinephiles, but they number below 50, including the three already working for him. Lately, while Wall has left a few DVDs trickle through, he even had a sign made up, new digital video discs, big screen on the small screen. Wall is a marketing genius, not. Hmm. So that's a little bit of Gems World. Um, so the main, the main story throughout Notes is that Gem is discovering underground filmmaking and with her friends they're going to make an underground movie over the summer and that's what their summer project is going to be. Um, so it sort of starts as a bit of a joke and then it becomes bigger and they get very involved and start investigating things like um, Andy Warhol and art happenings and, you know, the line between what's art and what's uh, terrorism, <laughs> I guess, for want of a better word, vandalism, um, get a bit blurry. Uh, and of course, this underground movie that they make ends up kind of wrecking their friendship because they're already in a sort of a perilous place. Um, I started writing notes when I was living in England. I decided to go travelling and seek my fortune. I'll sit back down again. And I went to Canada on a working visa, but ironically I couldn't get a job when I got there. So I went on to the UK and I stayed, I think I was planning to stay for three days and I ended up staying for two years. Sometime near the end of that and almost certainly in the winter, I began to get homesick for Melbourne. I missed my friends and my dog, I missed the coffee and I missed the beach and I missed knowing where to go. I didn't set out to write a Melbourne book, but when I looked over my first draft, I realised it was littered with landmarks. The National Gallery, the State Library, Flinders Street Station. And I'll just read a little bit from there. The city was gearing up for high Friday night fever. Me, Lowe and Mira walked up Swanson Streets, past sparking trams and sullen taxi drivers. We shouted at each other over barkers and the unholy crash bang of the Hare Krishnas. When we got to the State Library, we parked on the stone steps and did a spot of people watching. Couples lolled on the lawn. Skater kids turned tricks or came off their boards with a spit and a shrug. A steady stream thronged into Melbourne Central. IT guys, PR women, students, our non-barcode brethren, cute boys in ACDC t-shirts, cool girls in stripy tights, red lipstick, lethal black boots. We breathed it all in and Lo was grinning. There's no place like home. Um, when I was growing up, the city was like this mecca that I could never quite reach. Uh, and I gave that to my characters as well. Uh, I think one of the advantages of growing up somewhere that's far away from the city is that you kind of have to rely on your own wits a little bit and make it up. And so you end up kind of with these disparate cultural influences um, that I think might not happen so much if you're in the city and in the thick of it. So there is something to be said, I think, for the burbs in a way. <laughs> and you know, then there's all that greenery, which is nice. Um, so, Jen wants to be a filmmaker. She wants to direct movies, but she can't seem to direct her own life. Her place is in a state of flux. With her friends, she's the observer, the third wheel. And with her mum, she's the dutiful daughter who asks no questions. And this starts to change over the novel. I'll just read a little bit about Jem and her mum. So Jem's mum works at the local community centre, which is something that's based, based on, on my life. My mum worked at the community centre and used to make these 
bicycle wheel mandalas that were hanging up all over the house and all manner of art and craft projects that I could never escape. Uh, in this scene, Bev is putting photographs together for the memory wall that's going to go on the community centre's walls for the last, I don't know, to commemorate the last 20 years or something. And Jem's looking through the pictures. I put my hand in for a lucky dip. I was rewarded with a series of snaps of Bev and Sharon looking over estrogened on one of their wild women weekends. Underneath these was a small white envelope. Quicker than thinking, I opened it. Inside was a black and white photo booth strip, three poses of Bev and my father. In the first, they looked at the camera with mock hostility. In the second, they were looking at each other. And in the third, they were kissing, her hands on his face, his hands on her breast. Hooli dooli. I went to the bathroom, locked the door and took the fo stolen photo out of my pocket and studied it again. It seemed so private that I felt like a criminal even looking at it. What had they just been doing? What were they about to do? My father looked tanned and handsome. He had a gleam in his eyes, like he knew a magnificent secret. This was the first picture I'd seen of him that made me want to know him, that didn't make him look like a lumpen hippie or a street person. And my mother looked so giddy, so dazed and loved up. She never looked like that with John JB. She never looked that way with anyone. This was big love. Uh, so, place of course is more than just physical. Um, Jem's place is also kind of about finding her identity and um, find, finding her place in the world with her friends, with her family, where she actually fits. And it's kind of an ongoing struggle. So we can have places, location, places, emotional state, places, position as character. Places often symbolic, reflecting or directing the protagonist's journey. In notes, Jem starts a novel in a closed space, being the junior school toilet block, and then ends in an open space, the river reserve after the fireworks. In Everything Beautiful, which I'll talk about in a minute, Riley, the main character, and the landscape make mirrors. Um, while I was preparing this talk, I started getting quite excited about maps and mapping and the idea that you could map out a novel emotionally by providing locations of significant events. And in fact, you could do that to your own life and you could map out your summer. This happened here, this happened there. Um, when I was living in England, this guy I had a crush on made me a map to get to a certain pub and the crush didn't last, but I kept the map because he'd drawn flames to represent the pub's roaring fireplace. And every time I looked at it, it made me smile. When we make maps, we give away part of ourselves. So if I was to show you my map of Ringwood where I grew up, it might include the park behind the primary school that was called Spook Hill. And no one ever knows why they called it Spook Hill. There was nothing remotely spooky about it. And that's where everyone in grade five went to get married on the days that people were getting married. Again, that was one of the things that I was observing from the sidelines, sadly. I might include the telephone towers where my cousin pretended that he'd been electrocuted and was so convincing that I ran all the way home to get my parents. And he was laughing at me. I'd almost definitely include the milk bar where my sister so it was the first person to get kind of a job in the family. I think she was probably about 12 and she got a job at the local milk bar, which just was thrilling to me because it meant sort of cheaper lollies, or that's what we thought. But actually she just kept bringing home ham. She learned to slice the ham so thin that, you know, she could see her fingers through it. Um, there's a French writer, a situationist, called Guy Debord. I'll wait till that goes. Um, and he uh, defined psychogeography as the emotional effects of the geographical environment on an individual. Just kind of a fancy way of saying places you go and what they mean to you. Um, and he says, people can see nothing around them that's not in their own image. Everything speaks to them of themselves. So if I was to draw a map 
of this place. It would be completely different to the map that you would draw of it. Um, and my writing's like that as well. It's full of emotional sacred sites and I give them to my characters and I never run out of them because I'm making more all the time. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Everything Beautiful. So this is it. I'll just read from the start. There's a chapter called The Palace of Suctum. The first sign we were entering the Palace of Suctum came as we passed under the wooden arches. They had a shipwreck look and were etched with this, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. There's a challenge. Dad winked at me in the rear view mirror. Someone's got their work cut out for them. Ha ha, I made a face. It was high noon. Outside the window was a wilderness of dust. Ron, Norma cried. She turned to me. Don't listen to him, pet, you're gorgeous. And then she trilled, and we're here. Aren't you excited? I'm so excited I need the toilet. Riley? Dad's voice was like a jab in the ribs. What? You know. He mouthed, be nice. Be nice to Norma. That old refrain. Well, I didn't want to be nice. He couldn't banish me and still expect sunshine smiles. Here was Spirit Ranch Holiday Camp. The website boasted an oasis of fun and learning on the edge of the little desert. From Pomponderu Hill to the southern crater, nowhere is God's work more in evidence. From where I was sitting, it looked like a horror movie set, closed up and quiet, too quiet. I wasn't excited, I was banished. The closest town was called Nil, and that's exactly where I set my expectation levels. It had been a long drive, made longer by Norma's new age soundtrack. Fern gullies, waterfalls, the tranquil sounds of whale sex. I couldn't stop staring at Norma's hand planted on Dad's thigh. Traveller's hand. Mum used to do that, but Mum's hand was a salve. Norma's was more like a falconer's mitt. Um, okay, so Everything Beautiful is about Riley Rose, who's a 16-year-old plus-size drama queen who's sentenced to a Christian holiday camp for bad behaviour. Uh, she's an atheist with a chip on her shoulder and she's appalled by the happy campers and sets out to escape in a dune buggy across the little desert. It's a comedy, drama, romance. The action takes place over a week and barring the first, chap uh, the first chapter all within 600 kilometres of scrub. Um, I always had a Christian camp story in me because as a teenager my parents routinely forced me to go to these holiday camps where I was, would have to do whitewater rafting and sing songs to God and uh, you know I don't really remember any of the parables, I just remember really mean girls with whopping great cans of hairspray. Um, when I was thinking about where to set everything beautiful I wanted a place that felt like the arse end of the world, a place where escape was impossible. So, um, oh. This is that place, map number two. Okay, so this is the plane. This is the green where Riley first sees the other campers and they look like coloured balls in a pool game and she decides that she's going to be the black ball. And that's the toilets there, the shower block where she saves the younger camper who's being bullied. And up there is the roundabout where she almost shags the camp cad. And that's the smoker's corner, where she connects with Dylan Luck, who's this uh, her despondent wheelchair boy, who the summer before at the camp was kind of like king of the camp, but in the year that's happened has had an accident and is now paraplegic. Lots of big stuff in this novel. Um, and this bit at the back there is out of bounds, so beyond that is the desert. And if, um, 
If you go to the edge, you might not come back. That's the wisdom. But if you go to the edge, you might also get the treasure. So Riley gets the treasure. I'm speaking very metaphorically here. I have to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> again, place becomes something more than physical. Riley's not in a happy place. Her mother's died and she's emotionally blocked. She's a big girl. She's got bikish tendencies because the only time she feels beautiful is when she's with a, with a guy. But then she meets Dylan and they connect and with each, con each consecutive day, the desert becomes more beautiful and Riley becomes beautiful with it. Um, and this is quite near the end. Right. I woke up in the desert with a dry mouth and Dylan's arm hooked around my waist. The air felt cool and every few seconds I'd hear a sound, a kind of plink, plink that could have been a dripping tap or bird's fabled crimson chat. I thought I didn't want to wake up. Dylan smelled like the lake. He was salt stained. He had crystals in his eyelashes and stubble on his chin. I thought I didn't want to wake up, but when I turned around, I almost swooned. The lake was impossibly red and still, like a brilliant spill of paint. I disentangled myself and stared. This could not be real. It was too much. It was like an elaborate stage set. Any minute now, the lid on the sky would close and the roof of the mini mall with all its dirty ducks and rigging would be revealed and we, the mutard mall heads, would go, wow, wow, and go back to shopping. What was it about the desert that left me stumbling for words? Words were human tools, but this vision had nothing to do with us. It had occurred in spite of us. I felt like I was trespassing. I was a rude speck on an ancient tapestry. Then I felt grateful. I wasn't sure to whom, God or Buddha or the Big Bang, but while I stared, while there was no past or future, just the sky or the lake, I felt that I'd been let in on some kind of utopia. In a matter of minutes, as the sun continued to rise, the brilliance died like everything had to. I gathered some stones and bark and an iridescent green feather, and I arranged them in a pile at the foot of the monster gum, like a poem. Dylan woke up, checked his breath in his cupped hands and said, I don't suppose you brought a toothbrush? Morning had broken. I always feel whenever I read from this novel that I have to reiterate that it's um, not a Christian novel, even though it's set in a Christian camp. It's more about um, people's conceptions of what that might mean, and it's kind of about tolerance and trying to just accept that other people have faiths that you might not believe in. Um, and that's sort of Riley's journey. Is, it's all about acceptance. She kind of has to accept herself and she has to accept that her mother's dead and she has to accept there's someone trying to tell her that God's going to make it all better when she doesn't believe in God. So, yeah, just don't want, to, don't want you to get the wrong idea because I would be... You know, I had quite a few... Um, reviews on Christian websites and, and I think they were quite shocked because they'd started reading it and thinking it was going to be a, a novel sort of about a girl who's bad and becomes good because of God but it's actually not that kind of book at all. She just becomes good because she is good inherently and I think that people are inherently good. It's my little speech for you. Um, I hadn't been to the little desert before I started writing Everything Beautiful. I'd initially set the novel at a um, beachside location like the one that I'd went to, uh, well, one of the ones that I went to, the one which didn't have white water rafting, which is the one that's permanently imprinted and seared in my brain. Um, but I'd always had this kind of fascination for the little desert. It's in, it's located in South Australia and it's, there's the big desert, which is called the big desert, and then there's a the little desert, which is, like I said, 600 kilometres. So that's, what, 300 miles, I think, roughly. Um, quite a pretty decent space. Um, 
I had a guidebook from the 1970s that I found in an op shop and it was written by Colin Tealy, who's an Australian writer, a very famous Australian children's writer who wrote Storm Boy, which was one of the books, another one of the books that I grew up with. And he lived around that area and um, along Coorong. Um, and one of the lines that he wrote about the little desert was um, all about how hard it was for the flora to survive in that environment. But of course, um, it not only survived, it actually bloomed, even though year after year there'd be more drought. Um, and this line was the one that sort of stuck out for me. And I actually wanted to have it as the epigraph of the novel, but um, my publishers talked me out of it. It says, it is all a part, no, it is all part of an infinite world of aggression and retreat, survival and oblivion, regeneration and death. Um, and that to me just spelled out kind of Riley's experience. She's not just trying to survive Christian camp, she's trying to survive being a teenager. And so the whole thing became a metaphor for teenage life, my subjective teenage life. That is getting through all the adult fakery and bullshit and the social minefield and the status transactions that people pull on you. Um, after I finished the novel, I did a little recce to the little desert and I went in February, which is not the best time. It's, it was like 40 plus degrees every day and I had my baby with me. <laughs> it was a disaster trip. Um, and there was no river left. So there were quite a few things that I had imagined that weren't there. So there was no river for a start. There was just like there was bones of trees along the side of the bank, which was kind of stunning to look at, but also really scary. You just sort of could imagine in another 10 years time or 20 years time, there'd be nothing there at all except a little patch of dust. But the place where I stayed, he'd been living there, you know, I think 60 years. And he said that 30 years ago, there'd been floods. So he was optimistic that it would change, which is good. Um, apparently September is the best time to go because that's when you can see more stars than anywhere else in Australia, perhaps. They have star parties. I always wanted to go to a star party. It's very geeky of me. Um, it's a six hour, it was a six hour drive. It was too hot to go into the desert. But I did actually see the Salt Lake, which I write about. Um, although, again, I got that wrong because in the Salt Lake there's no water, but in my Salt Lake there's water so they can go for a swim. Anyway, we won't worry about that. Um, you wouldn't have known that if I hadn't told you. Uh, and the canoe tree, which again is in the book. And Nil, the town of Nil, which is really, there's nothing there. There's just like, you know, a few shops and some boarded up windows and, you know, every now and then a guy will go past on a motorised wheelchair, like a tumbleweed. I'm not sure what it would be like growing up there. Um, but other things were exactly how I'd imagine them, which is sort of weird. So it's funny how that happens as well. You could kind of write about a place that you don't know and actually get some things right. Um, so I was going to try and sum up, really, and say that this other quote that I found, which says, in discovering a small world, we discover the whole world. Um, so writers never write about real places, and place is shifty and fluid and personal. And I looked up the etymology of it, place, hoping to find some weird Latin thing that I could quote at parties again. But the place where place comes from was unstartling. Um, words like local, site, position, scene, locus, spot, locality, point, square, plaza. Strung together, they just all sound like the same thing. But then there was this standing out, tinderbox, sense of an inflammable person or thing. So I thought I would end on that idea of place as tinderbox, places striking the match, sparking the fire, 
and the point at which things start to happen. Yeah. That's all I got. I'm early, so I could read a little bit more. I might do that. Yes, I'm going to read a little bit more from this. And then when I think we're having questions. So you can think of questions while I'm reading, or you can concentrate, either way. Either way would work. Wow. Okay, this is when Riley first arrives at the camp and she's in cabin three. Inside cabin three there was a bunk and a single bed. The single was in prime position by the window but somebody had already claimed it, using her suitcase as a stake. I peeked in and saw polythene packed clothes. Just what I needed, an OCD girl, the kind who carried antiseptic hand gel and can only have one type of food on her fork at any time. I moved the suitcase to the floor and lay on the bed in coffin pose. And then I sat up and weighed Chloe's goodbye present in my hand. It felt like a book. It was probably a Bible. Nice one, Chloe. Don't, don't open it until you get there, she'd said. I tore through the wrapping paper. Sure enough, it was an old hardback. But it wasn't a Bible. It was Utopia by Sir Thomas More. The cover was brown cloth and faded, and inside the print was large, and there were old-fashioned illustrations and maps. Chloe had left me a note. My friend, my friend, this is what you call a bunker book. It's big and intimidating and multi-purpose. You can use it as a weapon or you can cut a hole in it and stash life's little essentials. You know, poker chips, acid tabs. But before you do any of that, I recommend that you turn to page 67 and then come back. I turned to page 67. An envelope fell out. I opened it. It was a bus ticket from Neil to Melbourne, leaving Wednesday at 10.30pm. This is important. The bus only goes once a week, but it'll get you home in time for Bed Seb's party. I'll pick you up at the station, Thursday AM. My folks are away so we can do whatever. We can order pizza and we can bang the delivery boy. It'll be cool. Read the bus. My advice is to sit next to a lady and if a gross farmer tries to pick you up, pretend to be deaf. In the meantime, do me proud, make trouble and always remember that Jesus loves you. Chloe. I stared at the ticket for a long time, a smile growing on my face. In the background, I could hear a fly trapped behind the window screen. I listened to its blind buzz until I couldn't stand it anymore. And then I pulled the screen open and using my bunker book, put the fly out of its misery. I was going home. I was going to get Ben Sebatini. The plan wasn't foolproof. Dad and Norma would find out eventually. I'd have to answer some sticky questions and I'd probably be grounded until menopause. But anything was better than staying here. I lifted a corner of the blind. The quadrangle was filling up with campers. They wore bright colours. They seemed to know each other. There were miles of smiles and rampant hugging. An aerial view would look like a snooker game on brown bays. The coloured balls dispersed, came together and dispersed again. I could see how the game was going to play out. I was going to be the black ball. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. Nice. I know that sounded bad to you. Trust me, it was worse for me. Oh. Right. This is the point where we now expect you guys to work a little bit harder um, and to ask some interesting and stimulating questions. So is any, have we got a mic that can come around? So if you've got a question to ask and you put your hand up and we point at you, can you wait until the mic gets to you so that everybody could hear? Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask? Hooray! Yay! Well done, brave individual. Why is it that places and the memories they inspire are so important in your writing? Why? Oh, <laughs> that's a bit of a big question. Um, 
You know, I don't know. I think I just have to write about what I know. Um, and, and I'm a really nostalgic person. And sometimes I think that my experience of um, growing up wasn't how I had imagined it was going to be. And so when I write these stories, in a way, it's like going back. And when I become the character, I can kind of become each character and, and sort of relive it again. But weirdly enough, I never kind of write myself as the person, you know, you know the person that you kind of always imagine that you want to be, who you think that life has no problems for. I, I still can't quite seem to think that I can write those characters. Um, so I always end up with these characters who are a little bit like me anyway, and kind of anxious and traumatised and, you know, interested in weird stuff. Um, so that's, I think the idea is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewrite my life, but then um, I kind of end up going skew if anyway. Does that make sense? Uh. Anybody else? Right down at the front here. Have you always lived like down under or have you lived like anywhere else? Um, mostly down under, as you call it, so charmingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in Melbourne where I grew up. Um, and then for a short spell in Canada, very short spell, and then London. Um, so, and I go back and forth, my husband's English, so we go back and forth England and Australia, sort of not that regularly because the flight's atrocious and expensive, but um, yeah. And then, um, and once at home I don't travel very much there either, you know, I'm actually one of those people where I always go back to the same places. And even when I go back to England and mm. consecutive kind of visits, I always go back to the same places there as well, a little creature of habit. Uh, again, I think writing is that, that idea that you can... Um, have free travel and you can write about these places that you'd never go to. But um, I haven't quite sort of written about Shanghai or, I don't know, Bolivia or somewhere that might be exciting. I think I always just sort of go back to the same, back to the same, sort of safety, safety thing, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, come on, people. <laughs> Gentlemen here. Is rivers in Australia warm? Sorry? Is rivers in Australia warm? Rivers? Oh, yeah, they are. Rivers in Australia are beautiful. Yes, I know, because you poor things. Rivers are cold here, aren't they? You can't swim in them and kind of loll about. And in England as well. Mm. Um, yes, they're warm and, they're, and they go places and there's tidal rivers and, you know, the, the natural environment of, um, well, Victoria, which I know kind of better than anywhere else, is very beautiful. And uh, yeah, kind of spiritual in a non-goddy kind of ooey way. Um, just in a, that idea that I think when you go places like that, you suddenly realise, oh, I'm just actually this little small person, and there's this big, huge world, and there's all this stuff that's going to go on after I'm gone. And you know, I've written a book, and really, that's about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, you don't take yourself so seriously when you're faced with the awesomeness of nature. I think. Mm. Jumping in a river, good for making you realise how small you are. Anyone else? You can ask me anything. Right, sort of up the back. Are you planning on writing another book? Yes, I am. I am currently trying to finish my third novel, which is set in St Kilda which is in Melbourne and it's a used to be kind of a port town um, 
it's a place that was kind of like, I guess it's Melbourne's red light district uh, and it's where all the artists and criminals sort of end up and um, it has, has been sort of gentrified so now there's sort of rich people moving in and there's always this sort of tension between the original inhabitants of St Kilda and um, the blow-ins. So I'm writing a, I guess it's a mystery novel. It's a mystery to me anyway, um, <laughs> at this stage. Uh, and then there's plans for another YA, which is, um, I think, going to be a summer holiday type of story. Yeah. Can I ask a question of all of you? How many of you would admit to enjoying writing or wanting to be a writer? That's not bad. That's not bad. So you obviously started writing, or were you interested in writing really quite young? I mean... Yeah, I always wrote. I, I used to write my friends' essays and charge them five bucks, and that was how I got through high school. Um, <laughs> I think I've always been very comfortable putting things down in words on paper. You know, that difference between um, when you get a chance and you can edit it and you can make it all beautiful and pretty, and it's completely different to when you actually have to speak to people and, you know, try and get the words in the right order as they... Yeah. Yeah. But um, always wrote and, you know, kind of like, I wrote about pop music a lot. I used to just write about music and I used to write fan letters to people and that was the sort of first thing I started writing. And then that kind of morphed into kind of depressing poetry, um, some of which I have kept, which I don't know. And then diaries, I always kept a diary. Does anyone here write diaries or blogs or journal kind of thing? Yeah, a couple, a few of you. Mm. I kind of recommend it, although I don't know if I recommend reading it later. Sometimes I think you should just write it and then just put it in a corner. You don't want to go back to that. So would you have any tips for people who wanted to be a writer or who perhaps just wanted to write a bit more and, and, and get a bit more out of it? Um, yeah, my, I mean, look, my main thing is that I always have a notebook. I always have a, a notebook on me and I'm always listening to people and watching people and being quite creepy and stalkerish like that. And, um, you know, no one knows and you can have your headphones on and you can be listening to someone's very interesting conversation on a train and then you can kind of steal words from there. Um, and I write, uh, I kind of, I write a lot of letters um, to friends which I don't always send and a lot of, kind of write letters to myself. So it makes me sound very odd. <laughs> um, and the other thing is just, I read a lot but I don't actually read, I mean, I just read what I want to read and I kind of read I was talking before that thing about psychogeography, which I just kind of like saying it because it's got psycho in the front of it. Um, but that idea of reading a city by reading the graffiti and on the bus shelters and, and kind of the notes that you find on the ground that people have discarded. And I kind of like this idea that, you know, there's stories absolutely everywhere and, you know, you just have to kind of tune your mind to that way of thinking. Yeah. So, yeah, notebook, stalking. That's about it, really. <laughs> Works for me. Cool. Any other questions? Right down at the front here. Still here. Um, would you say that, um, well, you have said um, that the first two books you've been are inspired by what's happened in your life. And your next books, are you going to do the same plan, or are you going to base on something different? Um. It, it, there's always sort of a little bit of me, you know what I mean? Um, and, but actually there's all stuff that goes in. So with the next one, it, 
It's a, I know um, it's based on a friend of mine was killed when she was about 26 and it was a very sort of disturbing thing that one minute she was here and the next minute she was gone and she was a very sort of vibrant, kind of wild living sort of character. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus for, for, for wanting to try and write this, I guess it's more like a crime story than a mystery because I know, I know who's, you know what I mean? It's, it's a bit sort of darker than that. Um, so that's kind of the part from me that goes in there and it's also set in a record store and I spent most of my years, you know, supporting myself by working in record stores which is a great job to have if you want to be a writer because the strangest people in the world come into record shops. Um, so those are sort of the two elements of me and, and, and that I've kind of lived in St Kilda. So those are the three things but the story itself it grows com completely from that into something else. Um, I think when writing, if you start with, starting with what you know is good um, but you don't have to stick there and usually what happens, what I find happens is that I'll start with something that's just actually almost truth and then it just grows and swells and it's like, you know, when you do Chinese whispers and you start with a story and pass it on and the more people who tell it, the stranger and longer and, you know, that's kind of what writing's like for me. God thing, writing. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching too much Mr Tumble with my son, everything's sort of become, woo Yeah, so, so yes and no. Yeah. There's a boy at the end of that row who had a question. Um, can you sing one of your dwarf songs, please? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I'm really not going to. I just sort of thought please. that. I can't believe you're asking me. No. Um, no. <laughs> a good start. There's a rule with reading Lord of the Rings, um, I don't know how many of you have read Lord of the Rings or not, and it, it probably applies less to The Hobbit, that actually the first time you read it, don't read the songs. Leave the songs, skip the songs, really? and the book goes much better. And when you come back to it the third time, perhaps, you can start getting into the songs. Well, I think the thing with The Hobbit was that, because I had that audio book, so I don't even know if I've even read the book, but I've had, like, I think mm. I must have started and stopped many times, because I'm quite like that with, with reading. I'd sort of, I, I do find it hard to sort of just sit still and you know, I have to go back and forth, but because I had the audiobook, I just, it's committed to memory and, and <laughs> you know, even his accent. And I, always just, and I always remember being so impressed that this actor did all their voices differently and, you know, they all had different personalities. You'd hear it coming through in the voices. So, yeah, but, but I'm sorry, I, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very unfair thing to ask of an author. No, it's my fault. I put it out there. <laughs> um, we've probably got time for one or two more questions. Has anybody got anything else they would like to ask? Again, another question. Who's your favourite author? Ah, oh. that's hard to pick just one. Um, I have lots of favourite authors. Um, if I'm thinking of um, kind of young adulty kind of that world. I really like John Marsden and Sonia Hartnett, who are both Australian. Um, and they're kind of the authors that I grew up reading. Um, but I like a lot of the kind of American kind of tough guy writers. <laughs> so like Hemingway, you know, all the ones who ended up sort of shooting themselves and writing about steak and, what was it? I was gonna say cows, but it's not. Bulls. Fighting. Bulls. <laughs> cows. There's a bit of a difference between cows and bulls, really. Um, so a lot of the, and I like a lot of, um, I guess more more culty kind of writers that came came up from, 
you know, not literary sort of writers, writers that would have uh, just come from out of nowhere and are, and are self-taught and, and I really like that idea of, you know, not something that's not coming from a university. Um, yeah, something that's more like the real experience of a person. So, all sorts. I can never remember someone succinct to say this. On my website I think I've got lots of people that I like and names and stuff. But yeah, I hope that helps. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's Thank you. us. Finished for the morning. Thank you so much, Five Simone. Five minutes to spare. <laughs> Five minutes to spare. That's well, fine. yes, but I've, I've, I've got to do a little thank you now. Oh, so, okay. Um, first things first, Simone will be in the children's book tent next door signing books after this event. If anyone is able to come and join us for that, it would be great. And obviously, if you've got questions that you were perhaps not wanting to ask in front of a room full of people, which is entirely understandable, <laughs> um, I'm sure you'll be happy to answer yeah. while signing. Um, I know that some of you may have to dash off because you've got schools to get back to and all sorts of things but just if it we'll put it out there and if you're interested that's where we will be that's where i'll be all that remains is to ask you to join with me in thanking simone for a really interesting and, and thought-provoking event today and i hope um you all have to go back and write stuff at school because that's what we make you do um but it may give you a place to start or something to think about with your own writing from now on i, I hope start so. with a map I reckon. Yeah. Start with a map. There's your tip for the day. Start hey. with a map. So could no you all join with me in giving Simone a really big round of applause to thank her for her event. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.